Let's pray. Father in heaven, Peter tells us that this gospel regarding the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was, it was all there in the prophets. And yet, they didn't know. They couldn't see. Not with the clarity that we have 2,000 years on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to sense, if, if anything, our, the extraordinary privilege that's ours to be where we are at in this place and time in redemptive history. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would make much of yourself through not only this particular morning as we worship over the word, but that you would take this series in the book of Daniel and show us even the very things that Daniel himself couldn't penetrate into, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, particularly as we move ever closer toward the glorious appearing. Lord, every eye will see you, even those who pierced you. Lord, give us hope as we look forward to that day. Come now and grant us light and then as we see and understand, help us to treasure what we see and may we walk away changed. In Jesus' name, amen. I think just by way of orientation, I can invite you to open to the book of Daniel uh, right now. The Old Testament prophet Daniel, if you were using one of the Red Bibles in the seats, the book begins on page 737 in the Red Bibles. Although this is an overview, uh, we won't spend a lot of time uh, in particular portions of the book. We will touch down from time to time and you may want it open. The hard numbers are sobering, uh, but if we're honest with ourselves, they're not surprising. Latest research shows that fewer than 20% of Americans regularly attend church. Fewer than 20%. That number may sound low to you, um, but that's probably because of what's known as the halo effect. Have you heard about this in the world of surveys and research? Um, What this means is that the halo effect is that most Americans, when asked about their religion or theology or moral behavior, they give answers. They they preach uh, a, a lifestyle far better than they actually practice. So historically, the halo effect means that we're accustomed to hearing that something like 40% of Americans are are regular uh, church attendees. Uh, So traditionally, if you ask 10 Americans, if they go to church, four of them would say yes, putting on their halo as they do, okay? But if you press into that percentage a little bit, uh, these days, what you find is that half of that is probably halo effect. So in terms of actual weekly church attendance, we're probably somewhere south of 20% in the U.S., give or, give or take. Now, at first blush, that percentage may sound discouraging to you, but I'd like to suggest that there's another way to think about those hard numbers. For example, did you know that evangelical Christianity in this culture is actually growing? 
Yeah. According to Pew Research, the number of evangelicals in this country rose from 59.8 million in 2007 to 62.2 million just last year. And so as one of my favorite Christian researchers, Ed Stetzer, put it, Christianity is not collapsing, it's being clarified. It's not collapsing. Jesus will build his church. Christianity is being clarified. Stetzer, again, says that nominal believers are now the nuns. Is that familiar language to you? Uh, Those who used to check the religion box, because that's what you do, you just check the religion box, they are now checking the box on the surveys that say none or no affiliation. Christianity is not collapsing. It's being clarified. Nominal believers are simply less and less hard to find. They're the nuns. Now think about what that means. If, and I think it's true, if the canopy of cultural Christianity that Christ followers have so enjoyed for the last 200 years or so in our nation, if that canopy is being withdrawn, then not only does this define the true nature of the Christian faith for the culture, but it increasingly differentiates it from the culture. Does that make sense? I'll say that again. If the canopy of cultural Christianity that Christ followers like us have enjoyed for some 200 years in this nation is being withdrawn, not only does this define the true nature of the Christian faith for the culture, it increasingly differentiates it from the culture. So we we can't have it both ways. That's a good thing. There's a word in the Bible that increasingly comes to name the experience of genuine Christ followers in this nation. And that word today is exile. Exile. Now, I want to be careful because, on the one hand, exile can mean something like deportation, banishment, dispersion from one's own country. This sort of exile is precisely what half of the inhabitants of Syria are experiencing today. That's exile. So I want to be careful not to overapply or misapply this word. The experience of American evangelicals is light years today from that of Syrian refugees arriving in Europe and soon to arrive here in this nation. However, at the same time, let's not misunderstand or fail to grasp in what ways American Christ followers are beginning to experience exile. Cultural exclusion. Social ostracism. The, the relegation of our religion to the sidelines of the culture, instead the middle of the, the playing field, the rejection of our values. The American embrace of so-called same-sex marriage from the highest court of our land, mandating it in all 50 states. The systematic slaughter and selling of the parts of pre-born children through government-funded Planned Parenthood. With each day that passes, it seems to become more and more obvious, if it wasn't prior, that we're not living in the promised land. Amen? In fact, a far closer analogy might be that of ancient Babylon. And of course, all this leads to deeper questions like, where is God in all of this? How does this fit into the mission that we've been given to be and make disciples of Jesus? Why is our church now after 71 years, just beginning to grasp a vision, the 2020 vision for baptized believers and welcoming covenant members and raising up reproducing leaders and seeing a 
counseling center underneath the leadership of this church and sending out missionaries and even planting a church in five years? Why does it seem that we are just getting started if, in fact, our culture is moving in an opposite direction? How does our vision even survive in such a climate, much less thrive? You ever wonder about that? Well, here's the answer to that question. God's plan for his people until the coming of King Jesus includes exile. This is not mere defeat. This is his design. God's plan for his people until the coming of King Jesus includes exile. This is not mere defeat. This is God's design. So this is kickoff Sunday, and we have the privilege as a congregation over the next several months to do a verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Our study is entitled Exile in Babylon, and there are preaching calendars in Fellowship Hall as well as the information table on the lower level. I invite you to take a preaching calendar and pray over this series as we explore this incomparable book of the Bible. Our focus this morning is going to be twofold. Um, We're going to have a brief word about a prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature in particular, which is what Daniel finds itself in the category of. And then we're going to turn specifically to an overview of Daniel to begin to kind of get a lay of the land here. And then chapter 1, verse 1 starts next week. All the way through, our design will be to seek to highlight the glory and grace of God in the gospel of our Savior Jesus, as well as to make application to our lives for this day and this week as we head into our week of mission. So let's get started here as we take a look at two tasks of prophetic literature. Two tasks of prophetic literature. Now the prophets were, were men. They were men summoned by the God of Israel and filled with his spirit and commissioned to speak a word to his people. The, the prophet's message was always God-centered as opposed to culture-centered. Eternity-oriented as opposed to immediately uh, relevant and rarely, if ever, popular. So two unique aspects of prophetic literature that we should pay attention to as we study the book of Daniel, and perhaps you already know the blanks if you're familiar with prophetic literature, forth-telling and foretelling. Forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, forth-telling and foretelling, F-O-R-E-telling. By forth-telling, we mean preaching, announcing, and heralding an immediate contemporary message with shattering relevance for the lives of their listeners and their readers. The preaching of the prophets is loaded with calls to repent from sin and pursue justice and righteousness. The prophets just placarded the the sovereignty of God, the power of God, most of all the glory of God, And they did this with designs to draw repentance from the people of God. The repentance was mainly sought from those who claimed to follow God. So, the prophets were forth-tellers. Daniel 2.20 Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. Or Daniel 4.3 How great are His signs! How mighty are His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Or the message of Daniel 4.26 and 27 Heaven rules. Therefore, 
break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. The prophets were foretellers. Do we need this today? Yes, we need this. Given the state of church today, given the lostness of our culture today, we need this. So the prophets were foretellers. Second task of prophetic literature that we'll consider is foretelling. Foretelling. So from foretelling to foretelling. The second feature of prophetic literature is more akin to the way that we were talking about biblical prophecy last month as we were studying 2 Thessalonians. Remember our definition of biblical prophecy last month? If you don't, I'll, I'll lob the ball over the plate. Biblical prophecy is history written in advance. History written in advance. It's a, it's a staple of the word of the prophets that they routinely foretell future events. And this is what is so exciting as we begin to look into the vision that someone like Daniel had some 2,500 years ago. Among the most common themes of the Old Testament prophets would be the exile of Israel, the first advent, the first coming of their Messiah, Jesus, God's heart for the nations, the restoration of Israel one day to their own land, And in the future, the day of the Lord, which would include the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist. Finally, the repentance of Israel and belief in their Messiah and then the judgment of the nations coupled with the second advent and the return of the Messiah. All these themes are ones that barrel through the prophets. Perhaps you remember the statistic from the most recent series that we had last month in 2 Thessalonians that there are 4,017 predictive prophecies in Holy Scripture. 4,017 predictive prophecies. And most of those are between the 16 major and minor prophets, beginning with Isaiah, ending with Malachi, and Daniel finds himself right in the middle there. So much of what has already come to pass was foretold by the prophets. For instance, Daniel alone prophesied the fall of the Babylonian Empire, which seemed impossible at the time of his writing, as well as the rise of the empires of Persia and then Greece. Daniel also prophesied the first advent of the Messiah Jesus, including his atoning death and the fact that it would occur 434 years from the decree of Artaxerxes, pagan king. You think that's impressive. So much of what is yet to come has also been foretold by the prophets. Daniel speaks in explicit terms of the rise of the kingdom of Antichrist, which we have yet to see. He tells of the coalition of nations that will mount an offense against Israel in the last days. Daniel foresees the destruction of the kingdom of the Antichrist by the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we await. And the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies are ones that we can bank on in a literal way because of how literally and how completely and how precisely they were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. So the prophets were foretellers. So the two tasks of prophetic literature, foretelling, this is news you can use, this is relevant to your everyday life, and then foretelling, this will be relevant to you, you're really going to be glad to know this kind of stuff as we move into the future. Foretelling and foretelling. 
Okay, now the briefest of words about apocalyptic literature. Does that word scare you? Apocalyptic literature? Sets us on edge, doesn't it? We need to make mention of this because Daniel is shot through with it. Not all prophecy is apocalyptic, but all apocalyptic is prophecy. Apocalyptic literature is is symbolic, heavily symbolic, visionary, futuristic prophecy that, in the words of one author, is about the business of revealing secrets by God about his purposes for the future. So we can say that not all prophecy is about the end times. Some was real time for its original audience. But some prophecy is about end times, and all apocalyptic is about the end times. And this symbol-laden imagery is all over Daniel, particularly the second half. We're going to get into dreams and visions and beasts and horns and rams and goats and precious gems and numbers. All of this and more. These visions are mysterious, they are wild, but they are also understandable, and they are meant to be interpreted. We're going to get a generous helping of apocalyptic literature over this sermon series, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you, God is not playing games. If we approach this humbly and prayerfully with a desire to learn and grow and make progress in what we're understanding, we will make progress. Before the end of this month, we're going to see our first apocalyptic sections of the book of Daniel in chapter 2. Speaking of Daniel, let's go ahead and tackle some uh, matters related to author and date and setting and outline and, and so on. Who wrote this book? Well, Jesus tells us that Daniel did. That's where I would start. Jesus has won my confidence in every area. Matthew 24, 15, the Savior explicitly references Daniel as the author of this prophecy. That means that in the first half of the book, namely chapters 1 to 6, Daniel writes the narrative, the story sections in the third person. By the second half, chapters 7 and 8 and so on, he switches to speaking in the first person, in the apocalyptic visions. We see this sort of language repeatedly in the book of Daniel. So chapter 7, verse 15, as for me, Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 28, as for me, Daniel. Chapter 8, verse 15, when I, Daniel. Chapter 10, verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel. Chapter 12, verse 5, then I, Daniel. So Jesus said that Daniel wrote it, and the author of these portions clearly claims to be Daniel, right? So what reason would somebody give for not embracing Daniel's authorship of this book? That brings us to a second issue, and it's the matter of date and and setting and occasion. When was Daniel written? Well, the historical events that unfold in this book all take place roughly between the years 1605 B.C. and 537 B.C. 605 to 537 B.C. So essentially, Daniel is 6th century B.C. material. The key year in all of this is 586, because that's when the fall of Jerusalem was complete and the last of the Jews were carried off to exile in Babylon. So you might ask, what what problem do people have with Daniel being the author of this book? 
Well, on the face of it, nothing. He certainly would have been educated enough. He would have had access to writing materials. That's not the sticking point. No, the sticking point of this book for many people is the shocking accuracy of the prophecies. Remember, Daniel prophesied the rise of a succession of secular kingdoms after the one that he was living in, the Babylonian kingdom, and he does it with such unflinching accuracy that skeptics have no choice, if they want to remain skeptics, but to date the book very late, somewhere like in the second century B.C., hundreds of years after the events that he's prophesying came to pass. And I'll just tell you, this is a huge problem on a number of levels, not for us, but for anyone who would doubt the, the early date of this book. Uh, take, for instance, the words of pastor theologian Jim Hamilton, who I believe is probably preaching uh, at his church, Kenwood Church in Louisville, even this morning. Pastor Jim Hamilton writes the following. Put bluntly, a late date for Daniel demands an author who was a scoundrel of high order, setting out to deceive his audience, creating in them the impression that things he knew had already taken place were actually being predicted. His purpose in creating the impression was to give himself the moral standing with which his audience uh, would need for him to call them to suffer and die for the cause he advocated. More simply, Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman says this view, the, the late date of Daniel, means that this book attempts to deceive its audience by thinking it is prophesying future events when in reality it's casting the past into a future tense. I don't know about you, but I, I can't get there. I can't go there. Jesus said the prophet Daniel wrote this. The author himself claims to be Daniel. And with breathtaking precision, these prophecies either demand our attention and prove his divine inspiration or they seal the deceitful and devious reputation of this author. You've got to make your choice. I take the old school view. I think that Daniel wrote this in the 6th century B.C. The same Daniel that the Bible refers to as wise and righteous and prayerful and greatly loved, one of the angels tells him. The same prophet Daniel who Hebrews 11 says through faith stopped the mouths of lions. I believe that. Now, as far as the structure of this book, you could probably outline it a handful of different ways. You see the route I've taken in the outline in front of you. Uh, Daniel 1 that we'll look at next week contains the introduction to this book. Daniel chapters 2 to 7 focus on the future of the kingdoms of this earth, the future of the nations. And then the back half, Daniel 8 through 12, will look particularly at the future of Israel and this, the return of the Messiah. So from the introduction to the future of the nations to the future of Israel, this will be our course. Now, let's bring this message to a close with some themes and some applications. I mean, what can we expect to encounter in these months together? In other words, is, is this news that we can actually use? And the answer to that question is yes. Let's consider three areas of application as we close. One, what this book says about us with reference to our God. Second, what this book says about us with reference to our culture. And third, what this book says about us with reference to our Christ.
We'll take each in turn. First point of application is this. Our God is in charge of our exile. Our God is in charge of our exile. Take a look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So on the one hand, we have Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, instigating this uh, reign over God's people. And on the other hand, we have the Lord giving his people into the hand of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar didn't take anything that the Lord didn't give him. Or, speaking of this moment in history, God says in Ezekiel 39, 28, they shall know, he's speaking of his people, they shall know that I am the Lord because I sent them into exile. You say, who did this? God did this, ultimately. Now, to be clear, and I have not been as clear as I've preached the prophets in this church in years past, the church is not Israel. We do not replace Israel, just as America is not Babylon. I'm not suggesting a replacement theology here at all. We don't replace Israel. But you have to admit, we sure do reflect her from time to time, don't we? All of these things have been written down, 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, for our example, for our instruction. More often than we'd care to admit, we do reflect the history of Israel. The church in America today finds herself in an increasing and unenviable position of exile. And who's ultimately sovereign over this moment in history? Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. So as the church moves into exile today in the West, in America maybe in particular, God is in charge of it. Our God is in charge of our exile. You say, well, why? Why would, he, why would he do this? Well, the second point is this. Our culture ought to benefit from our exile. This is incredibly important. Our culture ought to benefit from our exile. One of the most spectacular features of the book of Daniel is that the Babylonians consistently notice and prosper because of the presence of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in their midst. Daniel 2.25, Daniel 5.13, Daniel 6.13, they know they're there. And they are increasingly the beneficiaries of their presence. And recall what we said at the beginning of this sermon, that that canopy of cultural Christianity is receding from over our heads at this very moment. The canopy that we have enjoyed for some 200 years in our nation, it's now being withdrawn. This defines the true nature of Christianity for those around us, and it also differentiates us from the culture. Now again, we don't replace Israel in this regard, but we should reflect her to a certain extent. Uh, consider Jeremiah's words to the Jewish exiles in Jeremiah 29 beginning in verse 4. Jeremiah 29, 4, not only will you see God 
reminding Israel that the, he sent her into exile, but he sent her for a purpose. Jeremiah 29.4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons, have daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's fascinating. Or uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 25 and following, Thus says the Lord of hosts to Israel, He has sent us into Babylon. Your exile will be long. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. If you think about, for example, marriage is mentioned here. Do you see how strange marriage looks today in our culture? Old-fashioned, one guy, one gal, for life. That's increasingly odd. I haven't done a wedding in a long time. I wonder why. And when people do get married, when one man and one woman get married, there is oftentimes, you find underneath that, convictions, scriptural convictions, gospel convictions. Marriage itself is going to become a witness in this culture. Or uh, Jeremiah mentions seeking the welfare of the city to which I have sent you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. You know, most people have no people praying for them. Most of your neighbors have no one praying for them. Are you? can be a great witness. We are to be salt and we are to be light. So marriage, mercy ministry, our meal ministry on Wednesday nights, prayer for this culture. Our culture ought to benefit from our exile. Third and finally, our Christ will put an end to our exile. Our Christ will put an end to our exile. Repeatedly, Relentlessly, remarkably, the book of Daniel points us toward the second coming of Jesus Christ. While many examples we could cite, we'll just satisfy ourselves with one. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Our Christ will bring an end to our exile. See, history is, is careening toward this ultimate reality, the soon return of Jesus, his rule and his reign over the kingdoms of this world. They will become one day the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Don't you want to get that word out? The king is coming. Consider the words of the apostle Peter. Interesting, I, I should have had Andy read uh, chapter 1 
beginning in verse 1 in, in 1 Peter. Peter addresses the elect exiles. He's talking to the church, people who believe in Jesus. And by the time he comes around in chapter 2, he exhorts the church. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and I might add, ruin our witness. So we want to be a church that is steadily putting sin to death. We want to be a church that is uh, steadily... Uh, going about our uh, business of living our lives and building our families and praying for our culture and doing mercy ministry. But we want at the end of the day to make sure to get this message out. 1 Peter 2, 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us, called us as exiles for now, but one day will bring an end to this exile. I wonder today if you've come into this room looking for reconciliation with your Creator. I wonder if you've come in today determined maybe to give God one more chance. I want to encourage you this morning by turning that question around and saying that He brought you here today in order to give you this one more chance. Our God who made this world and spun all things into existence doesn't just stand aloof from our world and distracted or detached from it. He has moved all the way into it by becoming one of us. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to atone for your sins and for mine. And on the third day, he rose again. He appeared not just to the disciples, but to more than 500 brothers at one time, the New Testament tells us. He has ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of his Father, and he is soon again to come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And this morning, as you look at a church like ours, increasingly on the outs with the culture, we are a church that is not wringing our hands nor anxious about anything. We recognize God is in charge of this exile. We see ourselves as people with indwelling sin who need the Savior as much as you do. If you have come today wanting to uh, enter into relationship with God, It's my privilege to invite you to do so through Jesus. Turn from your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. If you want to talk to one of us, one of our elders, about what that means, how to invite Christ into your life, Dave Brickley and and myself will be down here in front. We'd love to talk with you about uh, inviting the Lord Jesus into your life, not only to be your Savior, but to be your Lord and your King and your treasure. Well, God's plan for His people until the coming of King Jesus includes exile. We may have lost the culture war, but this is not mere defeat. This is his design. God is in charge. Our culture ought to benefit, and Christ will bring an end to our exile. All of that, and we haven't started chapter 1, verse 1. Next week, we will begin the prophet Daniel in earnest. I can't wait. Let's pick it up then. Right now, let's pray. 
Father in heaven, there's no doubt that the conditions are changing around us. And yet, if we were to look at the arc of history of your people, we have lived in a very strange uh, cultural Christendom for a couple of hundred years here in this country, and that is crumbling. And rather than the church collapsing, the true followers of Jesus, it's just being clarified. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to live for Jesus among those whom we have the privilege to live and work and play. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us this day to be encouraged, to see your sovereign hand over this exile. I pray that we would take all kinds of encouragement just to put down roots and get about the business of following Jesus. And Lord, just as it's written in our Fellowship Hall above the coffee bar, we'll follow you and you make us become fishers of men. Lord, please draw people into our web of relationships. Help us to be politely, relentlessly curious about this Babylon in which you have drawn us to live. And may we seek the welfare of this city and the cities that surround it and this world. Lord Jesus, you're coming back. And we look forward to that day. In your great name we pray. Amen.